All right. Lessons in the desert. If you are newer visiting, we've started a series. You can go back and look at the previous ones on our website. Uh, but we've been walking through lessons in the desert. And this morning, to get started, we're going to start in Deuteronomy. And uh, it's in chapter 1. No, Move me, Joel. It's, you're going to have to help me again. Okay. And it reads like this. So just a little word on this. So hindsight is always interesting, right? Have you ever sat around with a family and you're recounting a family history event and you tell your version of it? Somebody else says, no, no, that's not how it happened. Or that wasn't what was important. You're like, yes, it was. And you kind of have. So Moses is recapping for them their journey through the desert, which now has taken over 40 years. And he points this out. He says, you murmured in your tents. We're going to look at that this morning. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. As we've gone over some of these stories uh, found in these books, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, and Deuteronomy, uh, we find that there's some overlaps and some layers to it. And we're going to peel back one of those layers this morning and um, look at it beyond the surface level. Uh, when we drop to this level, the picture we come away with is not pretty. I just want you to know that up front. The, the title of this morning's message is Cravings, Grumblings, and Complaining. All right? And we're going to take a look at what set them up for that uh, in, the, in the desert experience. There are some things that even God finds hard to handle. And this is one of them. This is one that uh, is, chafes him as well. We're going to look this morning at the combined effect of uh, these three things, cravings, grumblings, and complaining. And this, I would suggest, is a lesson much, uh, much better learned from watching others and then having watched the debris field, avoiding it at all costs. Right? So may Jesus give us a teachable spirit in this regard this morning. So let's pray together and ask the Lord for favor. Lord, as we come this morning, one of the things uh, that you've always tried to teach us is how to listen to you by the power of your spirit, that we would be obedient and that we'd have a thankful heart. When we come to this topic, we recognize we're vulnerable to this. This is not something that just happened in Israel. This is something in the current landscape of our country is going full force right now and uh, seems to be a blowout in epidemic proportions as we look at this. And some of this is going to hit home. Some of us are going to need to repent this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just massage the message and the words, have a conversation, and where you uh, conviction is needed, conviction will be brought. Where encouragement is needed, encouragement will be brought. And we ask that you'd uh, help us as we walk through what's really a difficult topic. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So we're going to begin. Let's see if it will move me there. There it goes. All right. Four M's. All right, so we have Mera, Mana, Massa, and Meribah. I looked it up and said, what are the odds that there'd be four M's like that? It was like, that was pretty incredible. But we're going to look at these four. We're going to start um, with, I want to pick out this consistent theme and attitude that emerges from the text. So starting in Exodus 15, it says this, When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. And therefore it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, in looking at their circumstances, I can totally understand 
that they were trying circumstances. I myself have been in the desert. I've been in a place where we didn't have water. Uh, they, at the beginning of the trip, they handed out these big grapefruits. All the gang threw them on the ground. I picked a bunch of them up and put them in my pack. And about a day and a half later, I became a very valuable person because I had grapefruit and I had water, right? And so uh, I, I can relate to that kind of circumstance. But notice... In these texts, it's not recorded. So we don't know exactly or for sure, but it's not recorded. You never see them stopping to pray during the circumstances. It's not recorded that they hit this spot and they all knelt down as a nation and prayed, God, you've rescued us before. You crossed us the Red Sea. We're waiting to see how you'll bring this about. What's recorded instead is that they grumbled. They never give God the benefit of the doubt after seeing all that he had done for them. And they became what I think uh, we struggle with in this culture a lot. And interesting things, they didn't even have TV. Right? We have TV and so they, we tend to be grumblers and uh, we tend to be evaluators and fault finders. Right? So, uh, especially sporting events. Any of you been watching March Madness and watched the Gonzaga game yesterday and the hand went through the hoop and the coach protested and he got a technical and it swung the whole game and then Gonzaga win. I'm glad they won because I wanted them to win, but I went, that's a lousy way to win the game and that was a lousy call and a lousy call on the coach. And so, I, you know, it's pretty easy to be a fault finder, to be, my job is to evaluate your performance and everybody else's performance that can quickly shift to evaluating God's performance and finding fault with how I feel he's operated or treated me. Gripe mode is in full effect here. If you go to Numbers, it says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. So Moses gets thrown under the bus here as well. It says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? Notice the implication of their uh, challenge. Your motive, they're reading into God's motive, says your motive, you, we know why you did this, you brought us out here to kill us. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no food, there is no water, and we look at the second M on the list, and we loathe this worthless food. The food they were talking about was manna, a supernatural provision by God. Doesn't matter that... Um, it was there all the time. Doesn't matter they had all they could eat. Doesn't matter that it was nutritious for them. And doesn't matter that they could survive off of it. What matters is they didn't like it. Now, when you first read about it, it says that the house of Israel named it manna. It was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So it actually sounded like it tastes pretty good. I looked up coriander seed because any of you know what coriander seed is? I didn't, so I kind of looked it up. And uh, so if you like um, Indian food, coriander seed is what's used in masala, right? So that's kind of mm, num num, right? Some of us like masala, so that's pretty good. And then I also looked up in the Spanish, uh, the word for coriander is cilantro. So I went, huh. But they're calling this, they got to a place where they called it worthless food. They loathed it. They never wanted to taste or see it again. Keith Green uh, has this down in a song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? And some of us will remember that. And he came up all the different ways they could make manna, right? He says, so in the morning it's manna hotcakes and we snack on manna all day. We sure had a winner last night for dinner, flaming manna souffle. Okay? 
Well, we once complained for something new to munch. The ground opened up and they had some of us for lunch. goes on to say, manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels. Right? Filet a manna, manna patty. And of course, the all-time favorite, banana bread. All right? Some of you remember that song. But the idea was here, here's a hundred different ways you can make this stuff, but they were choking on it. They didn't like it. And what that just goes on to show is that griping about food is nothing new. So mom, take heart. All right? It's all right. It's nothing that hasn't been done under the sun before. If you go to number 17... It says, then the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, now here's at the end, they, they go, Behold, here's their words, We perish, we are all undone, we are all undone, we have hit the end. We are absolutely unglued. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Now this comes, the story off of Korah's rebellion and uh, the contest, uh, the severe contest of leadership. And we're going to look at that, uh, get into that topic next week and their attitude towards leadership. But they, like I said, they just came unglued, right? To draw near to God was a disaster in their eyes. All is lost. God is against us. He kills those he chooses. We know why you brought us out here. You wanted to kill us. Now, we may not be that extreme, but it's funny how we can look at what God's doing. And for example... If you go back and I said, trace back, can you trace back to when God found you? And can you trace back to how he found you? And, you know, some of us he, he wooed and some of us he lassoed and some of us he roped and some of us he hogtied, right? Depending on personality types. And, uh, and he found us and you start telling those stories and, you know, you start getting this. And the question is, yeah, well, he did all this, but can he do this? He got us this far, but can he, you know, the next six years are going to be pretty tough. Is he going to make that? I'm not so sure. And so they, that's what they were battling. Notice something, though. This conveniently bypasses the real issue. Because here's the real issue. They are wanting it their way instead of God's way, and they're finding it hard to kick against the goats. What comes out in this is that it's not happening the way they want it to happen. And so they kick into grumble mode. But here's the point that uh, these books are making very clear. You cannot manipulate God. Any of you tried that? Right? How well has that worked? Okay? You cannot manipulate God. He will not be manipulated by humans. And so, if I can't manipulate Him, there must be another strategy. There must be another way to get what I want accomplished. Ah, I'll whine. And if I just whine long enough and I whine hard enough and I whine whiny enough, he'll get so irritated with me, he'll finally give me what I want and leave me alone uh, and then he knows I'll leave him alone. And so the strategy of whining, the strategy of uh, constant complaining is one that we often take on because we think that's the way then that we'd be able to manipulate a God. Notice again, we've gone through three or four passages here. There's absolutely no mention of prayer. It never says they as a nation nailed, kneeled down to pray about it. They, they grumbled and complained instead. Look at Numbers 14. 
says, Then all the congregation, this is when they failed to go into the promised land, raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. Now, pause. We get a picture of one person going, <laughs> and you know, and come on, suck it up, be, be a man, you know, quit crying. I think that's, this is two and a half million people. Can you imagine walking through the camp, listening to people bawling their eyes out and crying because they feel like God's brought them this far to kill them? It says they wept all night. This isn't just for five minutes. This goes on through the whole night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. The consistent theme that emerges from the text is that they had a spirit of grumbling. The natural fallback position when they faced either adversity, challenge, or deprivation, those three, Adversity, challenge, or deprivation was to complain bitterly over their circumstances and to accuse God of negligence in allowing them to fall into or go through such situations. They used it as a challenge to say, God, see, you have a crooked heart. You are not okay. You say you brought us here to take care of us, but you you actually have bad motives towards us. Much like a bad parent is neglectful and doesn't watch as their children wander in dangerous conditions, so they accuse God of at best negligence and of at worst actually having evil motives towards them. You know, we can start out that way. We start out with saved by grace and God's love pouring over us that our life changes, but after a while, the journey can be a desert and a grind and we haven't heard from Him lately or we haven't seen Him work in some supernatural ways that we want Him to work. And it becomes a desert and we start to grumble about the journey. Some of us have circumstances that feel like a desert and it feels unending and it feels hot and it feels dry. It does not feel lush or green. And it's something that's easy to fall into. If there's such a thing as trying the heart and patience of God, this surely seems to be one of them. And his response to it is anything but neutral. Here's God's response, Numbers 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? This is God's evaluation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his people, right? He's talking to the Israelites. And he's saying this of them, his evaluation of what they're doing and the way they're doing it, is he says, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? He's calling what they're doing wickedness. It's evil. What they're doing and how they're flipping the picture. And he's not happy about it. He says, I've heard the grumblings of people of Israel with which they grumble against me. In another place he asks, how long will these people despise me? Have you ever had a complainer in your life? Right? Somebody just, oh, here it goes again. Right? And you're like, how long is this going to go? Oh, man. Right? And anything past three three minutes is like, you know, just you're hanging on for dear life. Like, I hope they'll walk away. Please just go somewhere. All right. We have a hard time at one complainer. Can you imagine what a whole planet sounds like to God? Can you imagine what that feels like? His creation balking back at him 
and telling him how incompetent he is, tell him what a lousy leader he is, telling him that his motives are crooked, that he's no more right or holy uh, or righteous than anything else down here. Matter of fact, he may be more crooked than all of them. Can you imagine what that feels like to God? We don't often think of it from that perspective. But when you do, if you think about the uh, rhetoric of the planet, what is it saying to God? You're worthless. You're not needed. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our homes. We don't want you in our land. Matter of fact, God, actually, you're the problem. If it weren't for the stuff you kicked into gear, we'd actually be okay because it's religion that's the problem. So, like, if you were to go away, we'd actually have it better than we have it right now. That's kind of the thinking, and you don't have to go very far to find that thinking in our world today. How long will these people despise me? Now, most of us are pretty familiar with the cold uh, flu virus going around, right? A lot of us have gotten leveled by that, and um, usually all we've got to do is look at a person. We know they're sick. How do we know, you know, the bleary eyes and the... Uh, horse throat and the stuffed nose. I've been very fortunate. I haven't picked it up yet and I hope I don't. Those of you who had it, I said, stay away from me. If you give it to me, you're preaching on Sunday. Right? And that's kept people doing a U-turn. They see me and they go the other way. So that's been good so far. But what we're talking about here is symptoms. Right? And this grumbling or complaining is a symptom. Uh, This, it's a bitter, this bitterly complaining is just that. But it's a symptom of what? In other words, what's, if that's the symptom, what's the actual virus? What's behind the symptom? Let's take a look at that. Okay? It goes on to say, Yet they sin still more against them, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. This is Psalms reviewing it. They tested God, and notice where did they test them? They tested God in their heart. It's not a visible outward thing. It's in their heart where the testing happened. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. There's a new word inserted. What's behind the system of grumbling and complaining uh, is this issue of craving. And they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck a rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Now the problem in reading it that way is it doesn't give any inflection what they're saying. Um, to that. This is a flat out challenge. Here's what they're saying. Okay, well yeah, yeah, he struck the rock and water came out. Yeah, we drank of the water. That was great. But hey, can he set a table? Water's fine. We want meat. You know, Wendy's, where's the beef? Okay, that's old. If you're laughing, you're giving your age away. All right. Where's the beef? Can, can he actually do that? And so they're, they're testing him on that. If you're such big britches, feed us the way we want to be fed. Now, what's behind that? What's behind that is a craving for food. Uh, you have experienced this. You ever gone on a slight fast or gone through a day and then you start uh, imagining things like chocolate shakes and hamburgers and uh, maybe something you really like and you're going, nom, nom, right? You can almost taste it. And then there's a drive to go and find that, to go get that. that that's the question. So what's a craving? Well, a craving is an intense, urgent, or abnormal desire or longing. Uh, for example, we say I have a craving for chocolate. Okay, right? That, that's a healthy one. I like that one. Okay, a craving for new experiences, but it goes deeper than this. Uh, there's a blowout component to this. 
when it comes to cravings. Look at um, Psalm 106. It tells us... Oh, I'm stuck again, Joel. Can you move me? Thank you so much. All right. Psalm 106, 14 and 15 says this, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. I want to show you the King James Version. That's one that many of us will remember. And can you just put it up there, Joel? Thank you so much. It says, but they lusted exceedingly. This craving carries with it this component of lust. We often think of lust as sexual and with bodies, but lust can be for other things. And here they lusted for food. They lusted uh, to fill their appetite. It says, They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Remember that phrase, leanness in the leanness of soul? That you can be doing everything you want, but have leanness of soul. In other words, you're dried up spiritually. This leanness of soul term is a very apt term. When we think of a wasting disease, we think of somebody who's gaunt, right? They're thin, they're emaciated, they're not healthy. And that's what this is talking about. Only it's not talking about gaunt in body, it's talking about gaunt in spirit. In other words, being emaciated or bankrupt uh, in your spirit. Someone who grumbles and complains all the time has what Scripture calls a gaunt soul. It's a one-trick pony. It doesn't take very long to find it out. All you've got to do is tip them a little bit, and what comes out? Complaints and bitterness and fault-finding. And, and every time you bump them, that's what comes out. And it becomes where you start avoiding that person because you know if you jostle them, you know what you're going to hear. But I want to take a look at this word wanton. What does wanton mean? I looked that up for us because I thought it's an interesting term. Wanton means this. Wanton is a recklessness or a heartlessness of motive. Wanton is unrestrained appetite, not moral or chaste. A caving into lust or desire, giving oneself over to. In other words, I capitulate, I, I yield, I, I totally give myself to this. A wanton uh, craving is something that I no longer fight. I just go head over heels and dive in for it. Their craving for food, here's the interesting thing, soon to turn into craving for illicit sex. If you look at each of these stories, in there, each of them, there is uh, tied with the episode of food, there's an episode of uh, immorality. And in each of those stories, a certain number die. If the golden calf, 3,000 die. Balapior, 26,000 die. Uh, you go through the different stories and in the breakout of that, uh, people die because of this breakout of immorality that happens. So wanton cravings is a heart attitude that spills over in all kinds of directions, of which food can be one, but there's other ways that it pours off. Uh, there's a deep sense of casting off God's restraints, and not just a little bit. Uh, Romans 1 warns us about this pattern and danger, and I want us to be reminded of this again. It says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever forever. 
Amen. If we reject God's leadership, what this verse tells us is if we reject God's leadership, He lets us have what we want. He lets us have our want and cravings. And then what we want destroys us. We become gaunt in our soul. Here's the interesting thing. The soul that gets cannibalized is our own. We get eaten up with the things that we think we want to eat up. And we end up gaunt and emaciated and starved and we're not healthy spiritually. Again, there's an underlying virus. The above, once again in this verse, is is symptomatic. If you read the verses right before that, there's an underlying root to this. And the underlying root is this. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Scripture says you can tell there's a God, you can tell there's a creator, just look around. Look at the ocean, look at the stars, look at the sun, look at the trees, look at the plants, look at the created order, look at how your hand can do this. Okay? And you don't have to be a PhD to realize there's design to all that. And it says God's invisible attributes are absolutely apparent by what you can see around you. But how do you lose that? Well, it says that here, so they are without excuse, we are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. How do you get to a place where your wanton cravings take over? Well, they take over if you get to a place where your thinking becomes futile. Usually that means you get away from Scripture, your thinking becomes futile, and then your foolish heart is darkened. We abandon God for the sake of what we want to pursue. And two things stand out in this verse. If you read it again, it says, so they are without excuse. In other words, nobody's going to be able to stand in, God, in front of God and say, I didn't know. God will say, no, you knew clearly. You just chose not to know. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not what? What's up there? Honor Him as God. You know, there's an appropriate honor that comes with appropriate station, right? If you're the boss in your job or in your job setting, there's a a certain honor that goes with that. If you're the mom of the house, there's a certain honor that goes with that. There's different places or stages of honor, but the greatest honor is reserved for, is given to God. God should be treated with the honor due his name. And God says that that those that honor him, he will honor them. But those that don't honor him will get the fill of their ways. You know, think about church attendance in terms of giving honor. How many people should be here today that aren't here? Why aren't they here? It isn't worth giving honor anymore. Why give honor? God doesn't do much for us. Besides, I, 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 it's better sleeping in. I get more out of sleeping in than I do giving honor. What's he done for me lately? My life's just as good as it's been before. Why should I give God honor? I don't need to go to church. I'm thankful out in the woods. Well, there's a, 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 a disrespect there. There's a failure to honor Him. And then there's a second one. Number one, it says they failed to give Him honor. But the second one is what? They failed to give Him 
thanks. The issue of a grateful heart. The issue of thanking Him. And we're warned about this same kind of heart condition. Uh, you might be a little tired of the Old Testament, so let's go to the New, see what it says. All right. What are we warned about? Well, look at Philippians 2, 14-15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another translation would say complaining. So put those words in there interchangeably. That they may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Right? Uh, how do we shine? How, how is a Christian any different than the other people right, that uh, walk around? One of the things I want to suggest is that Christians can really shine by not grumbling and complaining. Think about how unique that is. Think about how rare that is. When you're in the workplace, how many people grumble and complain about the workplace? When, when you're uh, at school, how many people complain and grumble about school? When you're gathered together, how many people grumble and complain about their mate? It's just natural tendency to kick into that. And I want to suggest if we just didn't grumble, we would shine as lights. It would, it would show up differently. Uh, we would not look like the rest of the people around us. Look at what James says in regards to this. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We often get confused and say, well, we shouldn't judge. Uh, and what we make that to be is, oh, we shouldn't evaluate anything. Well, that's not true. We should, we should evaluate all kinds of things. But what can't we judge? Well, we can't judge the heart motive of somebody. And therefore it says, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. How do we avoid judgment? How do we avoid judgment of God? Stop grumbling and complaining. We would be very, very different people in the culture if we just stopped doing that one thing. If we stopped having a grumbling, complaining spirit, others would notice. If you sat in a group and they'd all grumble and complain, you said, well, you know, I really, I like my wife. Oh, who made you the big happy jello sheriff of the, you know? They get on you like, who gave you the right to be so happy, right? And if you tell them Jesus, then they get really offended. But the idea here is that thankfulness is a huge thing. Here's what I'm trying to point out. Grumbling is not a little sin. If you have justified it in your heart and you've said, well, that's just the way I am, I got news for you. God does not want to keep you just the way you are. He likes you just as you are, but he loves you enough to not keep you that way. Okay? And a grumbling, complaining spirit to him is as difficult for him to listen to as it is for you to listen to. It's not a little sin. It's a big sin. Muttering under your breath is not unheard. There's somebody who hears it. God hears it. God expects us to move away from a spirit of complaining, especially towards him. As I said, it's easy to fall into this because, well, God, you saved me. You got him up to here, but... Well, I don't know. Next four years look pretty tough. Are you, are you God enough for that? And then we start falling into that. And I want to suggest if he brought you here, he can get you there. 
So let me ask you this morning, just practically, where's your desert? Where's your desert? Where do you tend to grumble? Where do you tend to mutter? Is, is your desert your marriage? Maybe your desert is your job. There might be some real legitimate reasons about that, but it doesn't mean you have the right to mutter about it. Maybe your desert is your children. They just aren't doing what you want them to do right now. Maybe your desert is the weather. Right? It's been a gray, gray winter, right? And I was walking with my neighbor the other day. I came out of the house and they were sitting on the porch and I said, hey, it looks like we got our weather back. Guy says, I don't know it ever left. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, we've had a couple nice winters and, and this one's been a gray one. We've gone back to normal. Um, but I always remind people, hey, this is the difference between here and Arizona, right? It's called green. It's called lush. It's called nice. The water makes everything verdant here. And, uh, and you can really find a lot of praise in that. And so the question is, does, does the weather, do I praise God for it or do I mutter about it? Sometimes it might just be the stuff you want. And God won't let you have it. And so you mutter about it. But have you ever realized that God saying no sometimes might be for a really good reason? And he actually knows something that you don't know and he's keeping it from you for a very good reason. First John says this, For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The other translation says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It is good, always good, to remind ourselves that this, you know, the, the stuff around is not permanent. I think we tend to forget that sometimes. The stuff that goes into the Jesus account, however, is. That's permanent. To do God's will with a thankful and not a complaining heart lasts forever. We don't get kudos if we do it and we grumble and mutter and complain the whole time we do it. Well, I suppose if you want me to, I just had three Saturdays and I'm never going to get a Saturday the rest of my life and you want to suck the last one up. Okay, fine, I'll do it. You ever been there? What's the antidote to this? In First Thessalonians, we find an antidote. Here's the antidote. See that no one repays evil for evil. That's always a good one. That's a whole sermon on that, just in terms of vengeance and revenge. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I want to suggest there's a really good little pattern right here. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. God is with us. Even if bad things are happening, God is with us. Learn to have a spirit of rejoicing instead of a spirit of grumbling or complaining. Learn to see the good side. Learn to see God through it. Sometimes the situation may be absolutely horrible. There's no good in it at all. But you can see God in the circumstance, and that's what you can rejoice about. I can see you there. Second of all, it says, pray without ceasing. 
Notice in those texts, it never mentions that Israel ever prayed about those circumstances. I want to suggest it's wise for us to realize the mistake of that and to be able to come to circumstances and always lift all our circumstances up to God. Whether you're at home, whether you're at work, whether you're at school, wherever, lift those circumstances, pray without ceasing, bring everything, big or small, before God. And then the last one is give thanks in all circumstances. The attitude of gratitude is more than a slogan. It's a state of being. A thankful heart is a grateful heart. You can tell a church its health by its level of gratitude, by its level of thankfulness. You can get some pretty curmudgeonly churches, right? They look like sour lemons. Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, I love God. Yeah, it's awesome. Except it takes all my time. Right? You ever run into that? Okay, here it says, have, a, have an attitude of gratitude. Always give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is no circumstance that Jesus is not in. doesn't mean all circumstances are good, but there are no circumstances that Jesus is not in. We need to learn to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit and be grateful. All right, well, this morning might have pegged some of you. And if it did, then what's called, is, what's called for is repentance. Notice Israel didn't repent very well. Matter of fact, after the wipeout, after the debris field, after the massive complaining, after some of them died and they were back in the desert, then they came to God and said, okay, we were wrong, we accused you of false motives, we repent. Well, I would suggest it's a lot better to repent at the front end than at the back end uh, because when you repent at the back end, uh, you're very much like somebody snitching cookies out of the cookie jar. Okay? If you get caught snitching cookies out of the cookie jar, taking you, some of you back to your childhood, right? you get caught snitching cookies out of the cookie jar and mom catches you, right? she had the vacuum cleaner going, you were pretty sure she couldn't hear you and now all of a sudden there she comes around the corner. Some of you have very guilty eyes right now. All right? The, and, and then you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. Right? The question on the table at that point is this. Are you sorry that what you did was wrong? And John's going, no. Or are you sorry that you got caught? Right? And the same thing is true with repentance. If we come to God before anything comes to the table, we just come, I've been wrong. Pegged, dead to rights. I have had a grumbling, complaining spirit. Then God knows the motive's right. If it's after the fact, then the question is, why are you sorry? Are you just sorry you got caught? Or are you sorry that what you did is wrong? Do you realize how a a complaining spirit hurts the heart of God? So this morning, the question is, does anybody need to repent this morning? Holy Spirit talking to anybody. If you do, I want to give you a minute to do that. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Father, as we come this morning, it's highly likely that this message has spoken directly to our hearts in ways maybe that we hadn't even anticipated. And because of that, Lord, and because you're having a conversation, we want to stop. Who needs to come to the Lord this morning and say, I am sorry. I have been wrong. I have been guilty. 
of complaining. I have been guilty of grumbling and grumbling against you, Lord. I have quenched your spirit. I have pushed your son away. I have dishonored you, God. May you find our hearts right before you. Thank you. Come, wash us, cleanse us. Lord, get the gunk of our culture off of us. Get the gunk in our hearts out of us. As we sing this song, Lord, use this song by your Spirit to point us back towards you and to to set a tone of thankfulness, a tone of gratefulness towards you. May we be different people because of it. We ask this in your name. Amen.